Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Today on Words of Grace, we're going to share with you a portion of a message that I delivered recently at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church on the subject of the second coming of Christ. This is a part of a longer message, and you can find this message in its entirety on our church Facebook page and also the YouTube channel for MarchToZion.com. The portion that we're going to share with you on the radio today will be taken from Second Peter chapter 3, a passage of Scripture that is the most clear and vivid description of what happens on the last day, the day that the Lord Jesus Christ returns again, how he destroys this world by fire and takes his people home to be with him forevermore. This message follows after some thoughts that we've shared both on the radio and in the pulpit as of late about the fact that not only is there life after death, but the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return to this world again, and he's going to raise the dead, glorify his people, and take them home to be with him forevermore. We emphasized this last week on the broadcast as we talked to you about the subject of glorification. Now, suffice it to say, the return of Christ is one of the major prophetic events of Scripture, if not the major prophetic events of Scripture— like the Exodus and the taking of Canaan's land, the return from Babylon, the crucifixion. This is one of the major events of Scripture that we wait for, only this is the final culmination of all of the other promises. This is what it's all pointing towards. In other words, final and full salvation, the final deliverance of all of God's people from all ills and enemies forevermore. Here's today's message, The Second Coming of Christ. This is one of the most detailed and informative passages concerning Jesus' return, and I love to use it to teach on the second coming of Christ because it is clear. Now, there are passages in other parts of the Bible that are just as inspired, but the language, rather than being clear, is symbolic. It is easy to misunderstand symbolic language especially when symbolic language is prophecy. Some passages in the Olivet Discourse are difficult to understand. Some passages in Revelation are difficult to understand. 1 Thessalonians 4, as we read last week, is very easy to understand, right? 1 Corinthians 15, very easy to understand. In 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus returns in the twinkling of an eye, and the dead in Christ are raised incorruptible. That's a Pretty simple passage to understand. 2 Peter 3 is just as simple. It's interesting because he's telling us that Jesus will return as promised, but listen carefully. He braces the church, that's you, and that's also them, and that's all of us in between. He braces the church that it will be such a long period of time between his writing and the second coming, that scoffers will mock the promise of Jesus' coming. And he even alludes to the fact that there will be potentially thousands of years between his ascension and his second coming. Now, how does Peter know that? Because he's writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
have there been thousands of years since Jesus' ascension? And we're still waiting on a second coming, so thousands of years between his ascension and second coming. Yes, you have nearly 2,000 years between Christ's ascension and, as we await, his second coming. Peter will tell us why Jesus is waiting. Peter will then speak about the second coming of Christ with great specificity. He will speak on the timetable as to how long this will occur. In other words, is there another age after that, or is that the end? And he will conclude by telling us where we look to be in that day. Let's dig into it. Verse 1, the second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembering that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. The promise, as we see, is verse 10, that the day of the Lord is coming. And it's going to be like a thief in the night. He's citing the Olivet Discourse. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And we will then, according to verse 13, go to a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, a new place where we will live. That's the promise. But as any good preacher will do, Peter brings this to our attention, and he goes on a tangent. Big surprise, right? When you're talking about biblical subjects, everything is so interconnected, it is impossible to exposit a principle, expound on a text, or a concept without many tangents. Peter writes them to stir up their minds, their pure minds, by way of remembrance. Now, to stir up means that something is already there that has to be stirred. To remember means that this is something that they already know. And what he wants them to know, he wants them to be mindful of the words that were spoken by the prophets and the apostles and the Lord himself. What is this? The second coming of Christ, the destruction of the world, the inheritance of a new heaven and a new earth. We find this in the Old Testament. In various passages, Isaiah is the first place we read about the new heaven and the new earth. In Daniel, we read about a resurrection of the just and the unjust. The apostles preach on this all over the place. They write about it in all of their writings. We find it alluded to in the book of Acts and their public preaching and their private preaching. This is just simply the message of the church. that Jesus Christ is coming again. But then he goes on a little bit of a tangent. I want you to be mindful. I want you to remember what the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles have taught, that Jesus is coming again. But before that, knowing this first, first what? Before the second coming. That there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. What is the motivation of a scoffer? Their own lust. If you look out into creation, it is undeniable that there is a creator. Now, you get in your car and you don't think, I'm so glad this car evolved from all of this raw metal. No, somebody put it together. It was built, it was designed, it was engineered. You look out at creation. And they could learn this from the heavens. They could learn this from nature. But, you know, we've studied things at such a microscopic level that we know the things that make up, the things that make up our bodies. And so we can look at the programming, the DNA. We can peer off into space, into the furthest reaches of the cosmos. 
Anybody that does that ought to be all stricken by the fact that we are created by a creator. And so those who deny that are what then? They're with that excuse. But what motivates them to deny the creator is their lust. Because that creator isn't the creator of deism. No, this is a God that says, do not do that or you will die. This is a God that is holy. It's a God that's just. It's a God that gave a law at the beginning of time. The reason that they deny him and scoff is because they walk after their own lusts. They don't like the existence of God. They're angry at God because God tells them not to do things that they want to do by nature because we are sinners because of the sin of Adam. And he holds them accountable for their actions. They walk after their own lusts. And they say, where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Where's the promise of his coming? For this, they willingly are ignorant of. You can look at the world around you and you can find proof of his eventual return in looking at the way God has already judged the world. Look at this, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that was then being overflowed with water perished. What's Peter's point? They're ignorant of the fact this world is already, has already been once destroyed by water. I've been to Grand Canyon. They're willingly ignorant of the fact that the world was destroyed once by water and it will be destroyed again, this time not by water, this time by fire. You look at the scar tissue all over this world from the global flood, and you can know that what God has said is true, and he will keep the rest of his promises, which is to come again. God will come again. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, I find it interesting that he uses the word thousand, not hundred, indicating that Peter knows through the Holy Spirit that from our perspective, it's going to be potentially thousands of years before the return of Christ. Thousands? Anybody that tells you these apostles thought Jesus was going to return right then and there. Now, they lived as if he were, and we ought to live as if he were. But these men knew that it would potentially be thousands of years before Jesus comes again. And it has been, too, to date. But to the Lord, has it been 2,000 years? A day is to the Lord as a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is as a day. It's literally been just like a couple of days because God exists outside of time. He doesn't perceive time as we do. It's not even been as a a day to the Lord, really, because he's not within time. You see, God created time in the beginning of time. That's why we call it the beginning of time. He created time. For us, we are creatures of time. We are bound by time. We can't understand anything without time. And so to him, it's not like 2,000 years have passed and, man, the time is really, really wearing on him. And, or he's distracted or, as he says here, slack. No, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some men count slackness. A day to him is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. There's no difference in a day and a millennia from God's perspective because he's outside of time. He's not slack as some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering. Why has Jesus not come back yet? Because he's long-suffering. 
long-suffering specifically to us-word. Now, that's the most important word in that passage, us. Long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, any of what? Us, but that all should come to repentance. Now, who is the us here? This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in which I both stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Who is the us? The us is the same audience of the first epistle. Who is the audience of his first epistle? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The us word of 2 Peter 2, that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, is the elect. So the us word is you. The us word is the people that God the Father gave to His Son in covenant before the world began. Now, Jesus has not returned again because God is long-suffering, not willing that any of those people should perish. If Christ returned in 1750, you would have never been born. You couldn't have known Him. You wouldn't be with Him in glory. But Jesus died specifically for certain people. He saw you when He was on the cross. He had to wait for you to be born so He could quicken you when you were dead. So when you die, you get to go be with Him. And in the resurrection, He can raise you again. The reason He hasn't come back is His long-suffering, waiting for the last heir of promise to be born of the Spirit. And what that statement there should come to repentance, that doesn't mean he's waiting for them to join the church or to live a perfect life. No, he's referring to the state of being when they are born of the Spirit and they have a penitent heart. All right, That's referring to a state of being, not an act. Ezekiel 11 and verse 19, what happens at the new birth? I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the stony heart out of their flesh. And will give them a heart of flesh. The stony heart, the one that is unable to be penetrated by the word, that is cut to the heart. If you hear it and you're offended, that hard heart is taken away in the new birth. And a heart of flesh, that is to say a heart of feeling, a heart that can be pricked at the preaching of the cross. A heart of flesh is given. He's waiting for the last heir of promise to be born of the Spirit and changed. And once that happens... There is nothing else that he is waiting on. I don't know that at the moment that that person, whoever the last one is that is born again, will be born again, that Jesus comes again. I don't know that. Maybe that last born again person has to endure a little bit in this world. Maybe Jesus comes back right that second. Can't tell you. I don't have the answers to that. But what I do know, that's what he's waiting on. And once that last heir of promise has been quickened, well, there's nothing else that Jesus is waiting on. There's nothing else that has to happen in the world He will return. Now, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about this. The Olivet Discourse uses this language. It will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Christ's return is referred to as a singular day, right? The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And in that day, what happens to the world? It's burned up. It's destroyed by fire. 
according to John 5, as we read last week, the just and the unjust are raised again. Matthew 25, you can read, All people gathered before him, he separates them as a shepherd divides between his sheep and the goats. A lot of different passages that talk about this. Christ's return involves the destruction of the universe with fervent heat. Again, in a singular day, he returns, and that is it. So, if you listen to a lot of preaching or you've read a lot of books, radio preaching, TV preaching, what then about some of these modern notions of a secret rapture, followed by seven years of extreme tribulation, then a resurrection, then the thousand-year reign, then the destruction of the universe. Can you fit all of that in 2 Peter 3? No, he comes back and it's all burned up. Where do people get that? Most of those ideas come from a man in the 1830s named John Nelson Darby. His views were rejected as heretical by the preachers of his time, but his notes were published as the study helps in the Schofield Bible, and as the Schofield Bible became popularly used... Darby's theology on end times influenced people. And so now in America, among evangelicals, that's the popular view, that all God's people disappear. And it makes for great science fiction movies. You're in a plane and the pilot disappears because he was a churchgoer and you're not. So Lord have mercy, what do I do? Ground control, Houston, we have a problem. If we're going to crash, let's joyride first. <laughs> you know, I mean, what do you do when you're in a plane and the pilot disappears? Where do they get that? Well, it comes from the theology of Darby. Darby took passages from Matthew 24 and 25, misunderstood them, and merged them with certain principles from Revelation, some of which describe things that have passed, some of which that describe things that are future, and comes up with this entire system of eschatology about the end of time that is incompatible with what Jesus taught in John 5, incompatible with what Peter taught in 2 Peter 3, incompatible with what Paul taught in 1 Thessalonians 4, incompatible with what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 15. Simply put, remember this word, Darby's teachings are incompatible with the clear cut and dry teachings of the New Testament regarding the last day. To be very clear, there were Christians who are accepted good pastors that the Lord used in mighty ways, that believed premillennialism, that there is yet an age. But Darbyism, with the secret rapture, people disappearing for seven years, Jesus coming again again after that, those ideas are unprecedented in church history. So where does Darby get some of these ideas? Namely, from the book of Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 and 25. Let's turn there real quick. This is in the ministry of Jesus. He's in Jerusalem. He's about to be arrested and crucified. This is before the communion service, the last Passover, before he washes their feet, before he prays all night in the garden, and then he's arrested, he's beaten, he's tried, he's crucified, and on the third day he rises again. He preaches this entire week. He leaves the temple. The disciples come to him to show him the buildings of the temple. They're impressed with the architecture, because we are, right? Right? You ever go to a really fancy building and you just have to stand there and, and look up and just take it all in? It's amazing. Jesus says, you're impressed. Oh, okay. There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. The disciples come to him after and they ask him privately, tell us, when shall these things be? What's that asking? The destruction of the temple. And what shall be the sign of thy coming 
and of the end of the world. Jesus' reply covers all three of those subjects, the destruction of Jerusalem, the sign of his coming, and the end of the world. Three questions asked, three questions answered. Obvious references to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Verse 15, When you therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, parentheses, whoso readeth, let him understand. That's a narrator's note. That's Matthew's note. What was the abomination of desolation when Antiochus desecrated the temple? The temple was destroyed. When you see the abomination of desolation, it's going to happen again. The temple's going to be destroyed. What does that tell you? AD 70. When was it destroyed? When Titus sieged it. This is prophesied of in Daniel, by the way. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. When you see armies surround the holy city in Luke's gospel, he says, let them flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. Woe unto them that are with child pregnant in those days, and those that give suck. That means a nursing mom. Woe unto you mamas that are nursing when Jerusalem is sieged. Pray that your flight be not in the winter. Why? Because it's harder to travel when it's cold. Neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. What's he talking about? The destruction of Jerusalem. That's the first question that was asked, and it's one of them he answers. Except those days be shortened, there should be nobody saved, no flesh saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then, right, this is going to talk about the interim between the destruction of Jerusalem and the second coming of Christ. Then, if any man say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. There shall arise false Christs and false prophets. There shall show great signs and wonders, inasmuch that, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. But I've told you before. In other words... I've already warned you about this. After the destruction of Jerusalem, before the second coming of Christ, people are going to be saying, Jesus is over here in a desert cave somewhere. Or Jesus is over here in Mexico. You know, there are people in the world throughout the last 2,000 years who have claimed to be Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus tells you, don't believe it. Why? Because when Jesus comes again, there's no mistaking what's going to happen. As Jesus returns, there's no mistaking it bringing us to Jesus' teaching on the end of time. What happens when Jesus returns? Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Jesus returns. All the tribes of the earth shall mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He comes with clouds. When Jesus comes, he's not going to be in a cave. He's not going to be in the backside of a desert. He's not going to be in a church. He's not going to be in the temple. He's not going to be in the Vatican. He's not going to be in some cult in the middle of Texas. Jesus is going to be in the sky. He's going to come with clouds, and all his people are going to be with him, and it's going to be unmistakable. He'll send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but his words won't pass away. It's going to be unmistakable when Jesus comes again. Where do people get that left behind stuff? Very briefly, beginning in verse 36. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. If anybody tells you the second coming is going to be on this day, at this time, you can say you are wrong. 
Every single person who has attempted to predict the second coming of Christ in the history of Christianity has been wrong. There is a 100% failure rate. There have been people who became famous, yea, millionaires, through predicting the second coming of Christ, and they have all been what? Wrong. He compares it to the day of Noah. Eating, drinking, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now here's the left behind passage. Then shall two be in the field, one taken and another left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one taken and the other left. Darby's theology says that the saints are raptured away, that they're carried away, and it's secret. They simply disappear. But if you read that carefully, as far as being taken away and left behind, who is taken away in this example? They knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. What took them away in his example? The flood. Who did the flood take away? The evil people. Being taken away in this passage doesn't have reference to a secret rapture of the church. It has reference to Christ taking the wicked away from his presence and destroying them in the lake of fire forever. Who was left behind in the flood? Noah. Modern theology has this backwards. Taken away is judgment. Left behind, who are you left behind with? The Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be left behind. Because this is talking about the destruction of the world and the punishment of the wicked. They're taken in judgment. Now, regarding a secret rapture, Revelation 1-7, there's a phrase that I just glossed over as we read it together. But I want you to notice this. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. That verse eliminates the prospect of a secret rapture, doesn't it? When Jesus comes again, every single eye of every single human being who has ever lived from beginning to end will see him. They will see him. Not only those that love him and wait for him and are rejoicing in their glorified bodies, but the nations of the earth shall wail because of him. There are people that will see him that will try to hide from him, his enemies. He's arrived and their judgment has come. They can no longer scoff in their own lusts. Now back to 2 Peter chapter 3. The world is destroyed. He gives you an exhortation in verse 11. Seeing this, what manner of person ought you to be? If you know the world's going to be destroyed, what sort of person should you be? You should hold everything down here with a very loose grip, right? Nothing down here matters. Everything will be destroyed. That is not rooted and grounded in Christ. Looking for and hasting the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now remember the beautiful passage that we read last week, in this new heavens and this new earth, a new place to be forever with Christ. He makes all things new. This place we will inherit with him in glorified bodies, unable to sin. He will wipe away all tears from our eyes in this place. Every enemy will be expelled from this place. There will be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. The second coming of Christ shouldn't be something that makes you scared. It should be something that makes you yearn 
yearn for deliverance from this world into a place that is far better. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this glimpse into the reality of what's coming. We know, Father, that all of your other prophecies in the Bible have come to pass. We know, Lord, that you wrote so often through the words of your prophets what would happen in history even before they occurred. And, Lord, we know that as you destroyed the world once in the flood, that you'll destroy it again. We know as Jesus died and rose again that his word is true, and as he ascended, he will descend again. So, Father, we pray that you just help us to not stand gazing into heaven, but to go and to minister and to work, awaiting the day that Jesus will return and take us home to be with him in glory. Forgive us of our many sins, we pray in his name, and we say together, amen. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to... Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.